Okay, good evening. My name is Hannah Johnson. This evening, our scripture reading is from 1 John. Please follow along in your Bible or in the screens. I'll be reading selected passages, 1 John chapter 4, from the English Standard Version. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. God is love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love. There is no fear in love, but perfect, perfect love casts out fears. We love because he first loved us. He who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas Eve. Have you opened presents yet? Let's settle this debate once and for all. Is it Christmas Eve or is it Christmas morning? There we go. We are still at a standstill. <clears throat> we have two more sermons in the book of John, 1 John. And so it's today and then tomorrow we finish out the series. And today we're covering chapter 4. And chapter 4 is the climax of the whole book. And all of the key concepts and principles come to their sharpest and clearest points in this chapter. Uh, as we have been saying in the book of 1 John, the author uh, is addressing a very common uh, belief system known now as a Gnostic belief system. He was battling Gnosticism. And one of the main things that Gnosticism believed was that physical things don't matter, that really everything is about the invisible, spiritual, ethereal world, the uh, unseen world. And so they felt like they can do anything in their body. They can do whatever they wanted with their body. It didn't matter. They believed that you couldn't actually sin in your physical body. So they just lived however they wanted to. And contrary to Gnosticism, John says that one of the key ways that you know uh, that it's really of God is believing that God came to us in the flesh as a human being. Now, this word flesh in the Greek is actually a little bit uh, more carnal than just the word flesh. It's kind of like the word meat, that there's sort of just a grittiness and something concrete and real, tangible, uh, to the way that God shows up. And so Christmas isn't about just a spiritual sort of feeling. It's not Christmas spirit, but it's Christmas flesh. Christmas meat. This is how we know that it's really of God. God came to us in the flesh as a human being. Another thing we've been saying in this book is that life is the final test of whether something is true. Does it hold the weight of life? Whatever principle or belief system or worldview or values that you have does it actually work in the real world? 
Does it work for human beings? Does it work on planet Earth? Proximity to life is one of the key determiners of truthfulness. And so I want us to sort of push this idea today. God is love, we just had read to us. But love isn't just an idea, it's not just a feeling, but it's flesh. Love is fleshly. There is something visible and concrete and real and undeniable about what love is. And the Bible says that the first descriptor of love is patience. And so we know that love is not just an idea or a feeling, but it's really something real that we can feel and experience and practice. And one of the primary ways we practice spirituality or religion or love is patience. And so we're going to talk a little bit about patience today. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. By this, you know that the Spirit of God, by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. One of the, I think, very valid arguments against Christianity and institutionalized religion in general is that it's not relevant anymore. You know, people believe that the Bible is thousands of years old. Why would it be relevant today? We live in modern times. If we want to have an answer, we just Google it or we read a book about it. We don't have to read an ancient text to learn what truth is, how to be helped in life. And I think uh, Christians uh, and churches definitely deserve this uh, criticism and it's a sad criticism because uh, religion and spirituality is meant to be practical and concrete and visible, if nothing else. We should feel like, you know, things are sort of ideas out there compared to how real religion is. Uh, one of the criticisms I have of uh, my kin as a Christian is that lots of Christians over-spiritualize things. They see de demons behind every bush. You know, they've rejected whole uh, disciplines of science and study and thinking because uh, they say it's not spiritual. Uh, I was, when I was um, studying to be a pastor and I was choosing between uh, graduate schools, one of the schools that I was thinking about uh, the reason I didn't apply to this school is they, don't, they didn't believe in psychotherapy. They believed that psychology wasn't of God, and they believed that the Bible alone was sufficient to uh, mentally help people. And I just found that to be so sad. I think that if you over-spiritualize things, you're actually under-spiritualizing reality, because spirituality isn't just a small compartment. It's not something that could just be segmented, but spirituality is actually everything. Everything is spiritual, and all truths, all disciplines of truth are actually part of God's creation. God invented the brain, you know, and how the brain works, and how the chemicals are interacting with each other, and how uh, neurons are firing and synapses are bridged. That's all God's doing. 
And yet, there are Christians out there to this day still who reject uh, truths like that. And that, to me, is very sad. I think that God is the author of everything. We ought not just to be thankful for the supposed coincidences or miracles, but for everything. Because God loves us and he's fully alive and engaged in our day-to-day life. This is what it means that Jesus came in the flesh. And it really is sad to me to see that lots of Christians are actually functional Gnostics rather than Christians. They believe sort of in a spiritual faith, but they don't understand how to translate that to their daily lives. So to over-spiritualize certain things and see demons behind everything or angels behind everything is to not understand, not appreciate that actually God's behind everything. Not just one answered prayer, but all answered prayer. And even prayers you don't pray, how the world actually runs is because of God. Verse 8, 10, 12, and 16, uh, and then 18, 19, 20. I just want to read this again. God is love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love. Now think about verse 8 and verse 16 as bookends. We have this fact that God is love. God is not just some principle. God's not a distant cosmic figure. He's not some memory or some feeling. He is love meaning the kind of love that we recognize in the flesh, the kind of love that we humans need and crave, are driven towards. That's who God is. And the reason we have this uh, love hole, love-shaped hole uh, in our identity and in our beings is because God made us. He is love. And then verse 10 says, in this is love. Not that we love, but that God first loved us. He invented love. He is love, and us being beings formed out of his nature, imprinted with his image, means that we really, really are meant for love. What is love? We search for it. We look past our fleshly brothers and sisters, and we look for love beyond the human being. But here John says, the way we see God is by loving one another. If we love one another, God abides in us. Notice the way to divinity, even though we think God is invisible, is very much through uh, us loving our visible brothers and sisters. The way we experience the invisible God is by loving our visible brothers and sisters. That's verse 12. And then John says in verse 16, God is love. Now look at this. He pushes the point even further. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I think that verse deserves its own sermon. I won't go into it too much here. We love because he first loved us. He who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. It really is 
easier to love a human being than it is to love God because God is invisible to our naked eye. And this is uh, a hard challenge for us human beings because we really think it's easier to love God. He's perfect. Human beings, though, they're quite imperfect, quite prickly, and hard to love. But it's easier, John says, to love one another than it is to love God. And so loving one another is the step we have to take to be able to take the next step of loving God. There is no way to make the jump all the way to God without loving one another. The way we get to God is by loving one another, and then his love abides in us. Now, that's a lot of um, talk on love. But love is not, as I've been saying, just spiritual. Spirituality is lived out in the flesh. Spirituality crescendos, not up here, but down here on earth in the flesh level. And so this Christmas, we think about this fact that God himself made himself visible. He shoved himself into a human body and he came to us. Now, that truth just by itself sounds a little bit mythical, but it doesn't sound mythical as I think about what spirituality is, what love is. It's not up here. It really is down here on earth, feet of clay. And so the idea that God himself would keep pushing the boundaries of what his love as an invisible spirit God would naturally be pushed towards to, for him to become a human being. That doesn't sound so crazy to me. That's what we all do. We can't just say, I have feelings for you when you love somebody. That's not enough. What do you have to do? Is anybody getting engaged this Christmas season? Any of your friends? Can you get engaged in the spirit only? Wouldn't that be way cheaper? You can get engaged to lots of people if the, if the price was just spiritual. No, if you want to express the thing that you feel that's invisible and intangible in your heart, when you see this person and your heart begins to pound, the physical translation of your love is translated to your heart pounding. Speaking of heart pounding, what a loss tonight. Oh my goodness. Where was God in that game? Why couldn't he become concrete and visible during that kick? And you know, I'm comforted knowing that we would have lost anyway by two instead of by three. So there you go. Uh, where was I? <laughs> On to less important matters here. What were we talking about? If you love, what do you do? Put a ring on it, right? If you like what you see, what do you do? Put a ring on it. We learned this like two, three years ago. Was it two, three years ago? A little longer than that? Love is not a mere feeling. It's not just conceptual, but it's practical. God says, if you love me, love one another. If I love you, I come in the flesh. 
and I reveal myself to you and I make myself vulnerable to you to the point of death, even death on a cross. Spirituality is actually quite practical. And the science and practice and philosophy of how to love one another is what we call religion. That's what religion was always meant to be. If you took out the mandate to love one another, we would immediately cease to gather and exist as a church because the reason the church exists is because of God and God is love. And he says, if you understand that I am love, then love one another. Make your spirituality concrete or don't even bother coming together. It's not worth all of the resources that we pull together to be a church if the church doesn't love. That's what church is about. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is the famous chapter. You've, uh, if you haven't heard it in church, you've heard it in movies or songs, uh, in just pop culture. It's still prevalent. Verse 4 is the beginning of what love is. And Paul here says, love is patient. It's not a definition of love, but it's the primary descriptor of love. Love primarily shows itself in a concrete way through patience. And then bookending this uh, list of descriptors in verse 8, Paul says, love never fails. That's another way to talk about patience, that love endures and endures and perseveres and lasts forever. It will never, ever end because love is absolutely patient. It never gets tired of us. Love never gives up on us. For its part, it will always be there. Love is patient. Love never fails. And then verse 13, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And then Paul goes on to explain that things like faith and hope disappear. We're not going to always have faith. Because right now we believe, but then we will see. Right now we're hoping, but then our hopes will be realized later. Prophecies, other truths and principles, they all fall away until only one thing remains, the thing that never ends, and that is love. And so the primary expression of our love to one another to make God's love and spirituality concrete in this Christmas season is patience. And it doesn't just mean waiting. It doesn't mean being passive, being stationary. But it's actively enduring and persevering and hoping and believing. That's what patience is. I came across this really, I thought, great quote. I want to read it for us. It says this, patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope. And patience with God is faith. The author goes on to expound what he means by this quote, and he says this, Hardly anything points toward God and calls as urgently for God as the experience of his absence, his silence. Yes, patience is what I consider to be the main difference between faith and atheism. I'm convinced that maturing in one's faith entails accepting enduring moments. 
and sometimes even lengthy periods when God seems remote or remains concealed. We need faith precisely when our lives and the world are full of uncertainty during the cold night of God's silence. Faith and hope are expressions of our patience at just such moments, and so is love. The story of Christmas is a story of God's love towards us, which, if it's nothing else, it is patient. The scriptures teach that in the fullness of time, God waited thousands of years, thousands of years, and in just the right time, scripture says, God sent his son. And in his coming, Jesus endured a harsh earthly life And in death, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. And the whole idea is that we are filled with God's love first, and then we are conduits of God's love. Another way to think about that, a play on the word conduits, is that we conduct God's love. We conduct God's patience. I remember learning in classroom physics uh, that to conduct electricity, the material has to be conductive to convey the electricity from the source to its destination. And so I asked the question, how do we become conductive? How do we conduct God's love? How does God's love go from the principle, the idea, the heart, to the flesh? How does that happen? The answer, the answer in the book of 1 John is that if we want to conduct God's love, we have to first be loved. And then my next question is, well, how do we experience God's love first? It's a nice idea that we are first loved and then we are able to love. Of course, that's true. If you want your child to be a loving person, you got to love them first. You pour into them first and then they become a loving person in theory. They look like monsters a lot of the time. But if we are consistent and we don't fail in our love towards them, they become loving people. But what's the key? to them experiencing, to little children who have never experienced love before, how do they come to experience love? I think this is the money question here. Here's God's love, and God says, I have to love, because that's how love is made visible. That's how God is made visible. So I want to do that. I want to love others. How do I do that? And then the Bible says, you have to first be loved. How do I first be loved? You know what the key is? The key is so simple. As long as I am lovable, I'm deserving. And if I'm deserving, then I can never experience love. I have to be undeserving for the penny to drop and for my soul to say, oh, I didn't deserve it. It wasn't a transaction. It was actually love. It wasn't a contract. It was a covenant. And so unless I come to grips with my unlovability, I cannot know love. You know how children know love? Because they don't deserve it. They're born 
helpless. They contribute nothing. They are an energy drain, resource drain. They take and they take and they take. We talked about this last week, the, the cost of love. That love is costly, right? But that's the way children know love. They know it's not because they perform well. You know, this reminds me of uh, kids I see, and not all kids are cute. True? <laughs> not all kids are cute, except to their parents. I think ugly kids know love better than the pretty ones. So for us to know that God loves us, for us to experience first love, we have to understand that we are unlovable. So how do we know that we are unlovable? And we go back to 1 John chapter 1. How did the chapter start? Do you remember what, the chap what chapter 1 was about? It was about confessing your sin. The book of 1 John begins with confess your sin. Say that you are sinful. Say that you make mistakes. Say that you're not perfect. Start with that. Lead with confession, and then you will know what love is. Until you say, I need help, and I have no way to repay you. I don't deserve your help in any way whatsoever. Without you, I will fail in life and then they help you anyway, then you feel love filling you. You feel gratitude. You feel joy. You feel worthiness. You feel legitimacy because you don't deserve it. And so here's the whole sermon. Here's the whole book. Start with confession. The key that opens the door to first love is confession of your own inadequacies, incompetence, failures, and sense of hopelessness. This is why religion feels so serious and dark at times. There's all this talk about sin, and there's a kind of self-loathing that sort of seems to always, uh, uh, you know, live in uh, religion, and it's because of this. Religion made practical begins with confession. I chose this idea of patience because uh, the Bible puts it that way, but I really didn't want to. I really didn't want to talk about patience because I would say of all the descriptors of love found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, patience is the single thing uh, in the whole list that I'm the worst at. When I was uh, in college, I worked for a year as a bellman at the Sherry Netherland Hotel on Fifth Avenue, just kitty corner from the Plaza Hotel. Uh, and if you don't know where the Plaza Hotel is, this is where Home Alone was, uh, he, uh, you know, Home Alone featured the Plaza Hotel. So I am on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, kitty corner uh, from the Plaza Hotel, and I was a bellman. I wore this green uniform, and every single shift, I was late. It was ridiculous. And I'd be rushing in. And my nickname, you know what it was? It was Puerto Rican Russian. That's what they used to call me. Here comes Puerto Rican Russian. And they called me this because I was uh, experimenting with perms. So I had kind of uh, <laughs> uh, like a wavy, permy kind of hair that I would slick back with like half a jar of gel. And I was so tanned 
that I looked Hispanic. And so all the uh, guys, and half the guys were Hispanic, they called me Puerto Rican Russian. You always rushing to get in, always rushing to get out. With your curly hair and your dark skin, you're the Puerto Rican Russian. I don't know, it was in New York City. They called it like they saw it. And that was me, and that was, uh, that's, a, that's emblematic of my personality. Always so impatient. I want everything yesterday. Amazon needs to do one of those like 10-minute delivery things. And one hour? That's ridiculous. Who can wait that long? Right, Tony? <laughs> and so I begin with this confession. God, help me. I don't know how to be patient. I don't have patience in me. And the thing that I've been surprised by is how to the extent that I'm willing to lead with this simple confession, to that extent, I feel God's patience flowing through me. To the extent that I'm willing to confess my impatience, to that extent, I feel God's patience being conducted through me. And then I realize life isn't about my patience. Just the way it's not about my love, just the way it's not about my competence at all. It really is about me being emptied of myself. The goal of life is not for me to grow and be this amazing person, but for me to realize that at the heart of morality is not my morality, but it's about a God who satisfied justice with his mercy. It's about his morality in me, through me. And so that's what I want to invite you to this Christmas. Nothing fancy, nothing weird and spiritual as we sometimes understand it. But I want to invite you to lead with your confession. What are you terrible at? What do people who know you, how would they describe your weaknesses? To the extent that you are weak and to the extent that you're willing to confess your weaknesses, to that extent, your weakness actually becomes your strength. That's what the Bible teaches, that when I am weak, then I am strong because that's when God's grace is sufficient for me. And so I want to invite you to close your eyes. I want to ask you to think about who you are and all the ways that if you were left to your own devices, you would mess up your life and those around you. I want you to confess that just in your heart. Pray that now. If you have anxieties, if you have fears, if you have some relational tension in your life, if you're worried about finances, if you're worried about your health, or if there are needy people around you that you don't know how to help. Christmas is about the incarnation, which means God coming to us in the flesh. And as you confess to God, that's how God comes to you in the flesh, in your flesh, in your life.
God, I pray for all of us here in this room. that you would be our help and we'd experience your love and your presence in our life as we confess. We admit to you that we need you to flow through us. In Jesus' name, amen.